Mad Max Fury Road exploded onto movie screens in 2015. It racked up six Academy Awards in a box office of half a billion dollars. Let's break down George Miller's post-apocalyptic masterpiece. Hello, movie friends. Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost podcast, the ultimate film and TV podcast. Today, we're going to be covering a modern action masterpiece, one of the greatest pieces of action cinema ever made, one of the most wild, bonkers, insane movies I've ever seen in my entire life, George Miller's Mad Max Fury Road. This movie is just totally kick-ass, man. I love this. It was an incredible movie theater experience. One of those ones you'll never, ever forget. Guess where we saw it? IMAX. IMAX. Came out in 2015. It's a pretty old movie now. I I feel old, It's almost 10 years old. I remember clearly seeing it, so it makes me feel old. (laughs) Now, on Rotten Tomatoes, it is 97% fresh critic score, 86% audience score. IMDb, it is an 8.1%. It is a top-rated movie on IMDb at number 199. It's also a 4.1 rating on Letterboxd, so excellent ratings from both critics and audiences alike, and it's well-deserved. And written and directed by George Miller, written also by Brendan McCarthy and Nick Lathoris in a post-apocalyptic a post-apocalyptic wasteland, a woman rebels against a tyrannical ruler in search for her homeland with the aid of a group of female prisoners, a psychotic worshiper, and a drifter named Max. Again, it won six Academy Awards off of, I think, 11 nominations. So It, it got won, nominated for almost everything. It won Best Directing for George Miller. It also, No, it was nominated. No. I'm sorry. It won Best Achievement in Film Editing for his partner, Margaret Sixel. Best Costume Design for Jenny Beaven. Best Makeup and Hairstyling. Best Achievement in Sound Mixing. Best Achievement in Sound Editing. And then Best Achievement in Production Design. Nominees for Visual Effects. Nominees also for Directing... Picture of the best picture of the year in cinematography John, for John Seal. Well deserved too, and I remember really being happy when it kept cleaning up at at the Oscars that year because I feel like oftentimes you know, especially wardrobe costume dramas will get more attention, and then with production design, war films get a lot of attention. But then something like this, when you watch it and you see George Miller's vision fully realized, and you're just like awe inspired by it because. The other three films in the in the franchise, they're pretty small budgets. The first film was a tiny budget. It was actually the most successful profit-wise film of all time before uh, Paranormal Activity, before the Blair Witch Project came out. So at the time, it was a resounding success. It was made for a few hundred thousand dollars in Australia, and it grossed over a hundred million globally. So Mad Max was a massive hit, and the franchise was for two and three. They were. Pretty decent successes, $10 million budgets, both made about $40 million. So the, the the franchise kind of wasn't really growing. And also, George Miller, he was never really given the money he really needed or wanted to really fully, fully realize what he had in his head. And in the other films, not, not really Mad Max. Mad Max is kind of like a singular, it's a revenge film. And it's before the world has completely collapsed. It's like in the it's in the beginning stages of total upheaval of society. The uh, water wars, the, the gas wars, energy crisis yeah. is the main the main thought theme of that. But there is still some kind of order within the world, especially in Australia. There is like a, an order to things. However, in the sequels, then it's just total chaos. And you got you get hints of what George Miller was trying to do in those films, but he just didn't have the resources at his disposal. 
in the film, the franchise was actually never supposed to be like a desert wasteland set film. It was supposed to be set in normal locations in Australia, but they didn't have the money. So they filmed in the desert because it's all they could afford. So it turned into like this uh, based upon how the practicality of making that movie, they just, George Miller was just like, okay, we're setting it in the desert. It's not going to be, it was actually supposed to be a drama about a journalist. And then he's like, let's make it, he just evolved into this bonkers action movie. And you get the first hints of like that bombastic action cars crashing, metal on metal thrashing, and then the sequels, he was given more budget and more scope, and he was really getting to have more fun with it, but still, it wasn't there. Not to say those movies aren't amazing, but with Fury Road, budget was almost $200 million. It was about $170 million, which is massive. And the studio, I think, just kudos to them, Warner Brothers, for greenlighting this and giving George Miller that massive amount of money he needed to make this happen, because it's not... A typical film that uh, shoots for this long. This movie shot for seven months. That's why it cost so much money. It was so much stunt work, they did, and they were doing it all for real. So it's an impressive feat, but you got to give it to Warner Brothers for saying yes and giving George what he needed because it is, without a doubt, one of the most incredible visual feasts I've ever seen on the big screen. Yeah, the budget definitely helped him too, but also the advancement of technology over the last three decades definitely helped bring his final vision to fruition with this movie to like really understand what was going on inside of his mind obviously he had the comics that he's made too and there's a prequel series to this movie that got released the same year which is really cool to check out tells the story of furiosa and immortan joe and how immortan joe got control of the citadel which is really interesting oh i, I bet the prequel's about that i don't want to read it then so the actor who plays immortan joe plays a different character in the previous Mad Max films, I believe. Number two. Uh, yeah, I don't think it's Morton Joe, but mm. when there's theories about it, possibly. It's a, yeah, it's a theory. But I, don't I think, think it's, it's a true. cool callback to have him come back. But basically, what I'm saying is the technology advancements, not just with stunt work and cars and engineering on sets to do these crazy stunts and have these rigs built, but all in wire work and everything like that, but also camera technology and filmmaking technology. He shot this on six different digital cameras he shot on the Ari Alexa M the Ari Alexa Plus Black Magic Cinema Camera we have two of those <laughs> that we're filming this episode on obviously had the uh, ones from back then the Canon EOS 5D Mark II which every independent filmmaker has owned in I've their life I've owned that for 12 years <laughs> we still yeah we still have that yeah it's right <laughs> sitting right there in the other room a Nikon D800 and an Olympus OMDE M5 and the DSLRs the, those are DSLRs they work really well for throwing them inside of a car or vehicles or whatever for stunt work and action and, and crashes, and I think fortifying them so you can get those incredible shots inside of vehicles during mayhem that you wouldn't want to throw an Ari in there because that camera on the Canon, three grand, an Ari is going to be seventy grand. So it makes sense to use those DSLRs for all over the film. Yeah, you just blow them the hell yeah. up. It's not that big of a deal to production costs, <laughs> and it's really seamless what they did with the coloring and the editing and post-production using five different formats and five different sources of codecs for digital filmmaking. Yeah. Plus, let's say George Miller in 1979, when he made the first one, right, he got $150 million to make that movie. It would not look even close to this. It would not even yeah. look close to this because he really needed the advancements in technology for everything we've been talking about. But also, post-production work in this movie is exceptional. We'll talk about how they shot day for night, shooting all the night sequences in pure daylight, similar to how recently Jordan Peele did it with Hoyt Van Hoytema for Nope. Yeah, well, I would. I mean, the color correction of the film is one of my favorite aspects to it. And it's not just the day for night, which is really fantastic, but 
they use such high contrast and saturation that the desert is just it pops on screen that would have never been possible with uh, just shooting on the basic film stocks they were using for the previous films. Film stocks, yes, they can change color. Uh, I mean, not change color, but they have different kinds of coloring in each film stock. But none of them would have looked like that. And the deep blues, the the desert is almost it's this dark gold and even reddish at times. And in the fire in this movie is the most piercing red I've ever seen on screen before. And so the color correction of this film, I think, is an absolute highlight and one of the reasons why it really works. And I think that, I mean, Dom Hardy, he said after he saw the film at its premiere, he's like, I didn't really understand what George Miller's vision was until just now. And that's going to, like, I'm sure on set it just looked like kind of not that impressive. But then the post-production just made it fly and made it something really special. And I love the coloring of the film. Well, I have a great quote from him about that because this movie is so complex and we'll talk about how George Miller created mythologies and religion and lore based off these new gods of gasoline, chrome, and steering wheels, which I love, based off the resources of water and oil as well, guzzoline, and to quote Tom Hardy after he finally saw the movie, and this is, like he said, after seven months of filming in the desert not knowing what the hell they're doing, there was no way, I mean, I have to apologize to you because I got frustrated. There was no way George could have explained what he could see in the sand when we were out there because of the due diligence that was required to make everything safe and so simple. What I saw was relentless barrage of complexity simplified for this fairly linear story. I know he was brilliant, but I didn't know how brilliant until I saw it. So my first reaction was, oh my God, I owe George an apology for being so myopic. You get a, I mean, I, I get what he's saying because... Seven months of shooting in the vast majority of that is basically just stunt work um, in action. And so I'm sure by like month six, Hardy was like, are we still doing more stunt stuff? And I haven't like, said what? dialogue in a month. Yeah, so I can understand, <laughs> especially someone who's like that. He's, he's a very uh, intense actor and almost method in, in, his, in his practices. So I can understand why he was concerned about it. And actually, there is a boatload of drama between Tom Hardy and Charlize Theron on this film. I can get into a little bit later on yeah. after we talk about the film more, but it's actually very interesting. It informs a, a lot about what that process was like, and it's kind of like a, a really specific kind of uh, filming process that even two veterans of Hollywood found shocking and out of the norm for them. And on top of that, it was hard for Miller to get the studio to understand what he was shooting. And so I think it was a luxury that they were filming across the globe for so Warner Brothers couldn't just like keep peeking on set. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it was probably it worked in, its, in his favor to just film 4,000 miles away from Warner Brothers execs and everyone. I can't wait to hear about that. But how about we do something kind of new and. We both logged this in our letterbox last night, right? Oh, yeah. And now I have a letterbox. My username is at James Potter underscore. And obviously, the main account is at Raiders Lost Pod. You can, or you can just search Raiders Lost Podcast. You'll mm -hmm. find that in the usernames. But we're both getting hard on Letterboxd, and I'm having a lot of fun now. Getting hard on Letterboxd. <laughs> <laughs> Going hard on Letterboxd. Getting real hard on it, Going man. hard on Letterboxd. Because <laughs> I just got it last week now. I gave this movie five stars, of course. <laughs> I think it's an action masterpiece. And this is my condensed review that I'd love to share with you all. Let's hear it. Where must we go? We who wander this wasteland, 
in search of our better selves. What would the world look like if everything went to shit and we all fought over water and gasoline? It'd probably look like Mad Max Fury Road. George Miller is a creative genius, but he needed 30 years of technological development for us to truly understand what goes on inside his mind for Mad Max. Not only has he created a world rich with its own lore and mythologies based on the new gods of chrome, steering wheels, and gasoline, but he also made a character whose name everyone knows, Max. Tom Hardy doesn't say much as Max after the opening five minutes, but that doesn't deter a great performance. Charlie Theron's Furiosa is the hero of this story on a quest to free a Morton Joe's captive brides from their bank vault prison in a citadel of water in the desert. Movies like this fill me with a massive appreciation for the art of stunt work. These people are fucking insane, and I love them for it. <laughs> this movie kicks so much ass. Love it. Thanks. Five stars. Five, five stars. out of five. Five out of five. I wrote, <clears throat> I could watch a six-hour cut of this movie. George Miller's wild vision was finally fully realized, and every frame of mayhem is absolutely glorious. That's it. It's a nice review. Sometimes you, sometimes yeah. you keep it short and sweet. Yeah, it's all sometimes you, you go harder. I was harder. just excited about it last yeah. night. Yeah. You, you, went, you got real hard for it. <laughs> <laughs> I also, they have a lot of great posters to choose from uh, for the uh, Patreon-level letterbox, and I chose this really cool Furiosa red one. Oh, that's really awesome. Uh, with her screaming in the desert. Well, I mean, there's a lot of misconceptions, and I've seen so many people debate this online that saying that Furiosa isn't the, the lead character of this movie, but she really is. She is. And Mad Max wrote this as a Furiosa movie, and originally he was going to call it... <laughs> George Miller wrote it, I mean, it, not Mad, I say Mad Max. <laughs> I'm all over the place today. George Miller Slow wrote down. this, and it was supposed to be called Mad Max Furiosa, which is going to be a movie coming out starring Anya Taylor-Joy. But Origins! Origins of Furiosa, as she made it to the Citadel. How did she get her arm cut off? <laughs> and so he came up with multiple titles, Mad Max Furiosa and Mad Max Fury Road. Brendan McCarthy, who helped with the film, immediately said that Fury Road was the most enticing title for him to hear as just like a regular viewer if he heard that for the first time. And so George Miller scrapped Furiosa as the title, but obviously he's going to use that now. But this is proof that this movie is a Furiosa movie, even though it's in the Mad Max franchise. This is Furio Furiosa's film. The thing is, and so but he also wrote, other than the Furiosa prequel that they just wrapped production on with Anya Taylor-Joy playing the role. And that will, we're actually going to be getting a trailer very soon, probably cool. in the next week or so. So we might have timed this, we might have timed this episode perfectly. They might be dropping it this week. That's Ooh, what I've heard from rumors. That'd be pretty cool. Um, but they also, he also wrote um, a, a Max sequel called Mad Max Wasteland that could star Tom Hardy if they get it going. I'm not sure. I think that Warner Brothers might be wanting to wait to see how Furiosa performs before they greenlight another project. Because this movie did really well, but it was a high, high budget. It was a huge budget. It did well with DVD sales. So it got $60 million worth of Blu-ray sales. So it crushed it for home release. But the thing with Max... Is he the, the Mad Max franchise very much is like a Western, and especially it's like the man with no name Western, Clint Eastwood's Western series with Sergio, Le Sergio Leone. He is a, a wayward character who, who basically gets into uh, a series of different stories. He, get, he, he enters the stories of other people. And each, each of the, the first film is his story, and then num, uh, Road Warrior, and then Thunderdome. He's entering the worlds of other people. And then. Each one of those films ends with him on his own beginning his next adventure. That's the way all Mad Max movies end. And so he is kind of like a wandering 
vagabond of a, in a way. So in a it, pretty, it's pretty clear to see that Furiosa is the lead of the movie, even though it's a Mad Max movie, and even though they probably have the same exact amount of screen time, it is Furiosa's film, uh, and clearly from him originally calling it Mad Max Furiosa tells you that. But the story is about her story. It's about her world. It's about uh, changing things where she comes from in the Citadel. And then the movie ends with her as a triumphant hero in a way. And then it ends just like all other Mad Max movies ends with Max leaving on his own because he's a solitary human. He's a solitary person. And in a way, he doesn't belong with anyone because uh, the people he did belong with, his family were murdered. And so he'll never probably have uh, be able to connect with uh, other human beings in a way of joining their tribe or joining their group. So that makes total sense to me. Yeah, I mean, Max Rakotansky, what a badass name. <laughs> he is a road warrior. He was once a cop, but obviously the world went to shit. The nuclear wars, the water wars, the gasoline wars, and he's just been wandering basically, and he's haunted by the ghosts of his past, all the people he couldn't save, which I think is just brilliantly used and thrown into the film pretty early to get in the headspace of what this guy is like. And again, most of his dialogue is in the first five minutes, but he's still a terrific performer in this movie. And I, I don't, I, a lot of people kind of talk smack about this film because he doesn't have that much dialogue. How dare it's you? like, who cares? You don't need constant dialogue. Well, the psychology of the character is very specific to that because he hasn't spoken to anyone <laughs> for in a while. years. In years. So in a way, he's kind of like, forgotten how to be social and then he actually slowly begins opening up throughout the course of the film speaking more at first he starts out with his tom hardy grunts <clears throat> and a couple of one word lines after here the there. voiceover narration yeah, yeah after the narration obviously but when he's speaking to other characters it's oftentimes one or two words at the most but then at the second half of the film he's having literal conversations with people and then he's kind of like opening up again so it makes sense for the character psychologically where he's been he's been on his own in the desert for probably 10 years or so without a soul to speak to so it makes sense that he wouldn't be a very <laughs> talkative human being and he doesn't trust anybody i mean he he doesn't he doesn't trust anybody because he's an expert basically at survival that is his life every day in this world in this desert is survival that's his one motivation until really the third act when he decides to help people and then he has his motivation changes and he kind of becomes a hero like he used to be in this cast besides tom hardy and charlie theron is absolutely stacked nicholas holt is terrific in this film as nux one of my favorite performances for him zoe kravitz in an early kind of role before she became the zoe kravitz she is today she was one of the brides one of the breeders josh hellman high keese Byrne. Nathan Jones, Abby Lee, Rosie Huntington-Wheatley, Riley Coe, and plenty of other terrific lead, I mean, uh, supporting performances. You know who Riley Keough is? Uh, capable. She's one of the brides. <laughs> no, I mean, in real life. <laughs> She's Riley Keough. It's Elvis's granddaughter. Oh, that's why she looks like Elvis. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I actually love that the names of the characters in this movie are so interesting and funny. The, the names of the brides include Toast the Knowing, the Splendid Angarad, Capable, Cheeto the Fragile, the Valkyrie, the Vuvellini, and then Immortan Joe is just a crazy cool name as well as the Bullet Farmer. We have the People Eater. Charlie Theron plays Furiosa, but her full name is 
Imperator, Imperator Furiosa, which is basically another word for Commander. We have also Rictus Erectus, which is one of Immortan <laughs> Joe's son. sons. He's the big jack guy. We I have... had a baby brother. He was perfect in every single way. <laughs> <laughs> the Valkyrie, the organic mechanic, keeper of the seeds, the dag. So I just love how creative... And ridiculous George Miller gets with the characters and the lore of this movie. Yeah, in in world. uh, Watching this movie again, I watched it last night. I've seen it. It might be my sixth time watching it, and it's still that a movie that even watching in the comfort of my own home, it gets my pulse pounding, and I am just enthralled. And it's just like it just it's propulsive and gets you. It's like oh my god, it's so exciting. Gets you thirsty too. It's a testament to the filmmaking and editing. Obviously, winning the Oscar for best editing, but also what they do in this film is in terms of how the the speed at which it's shot is kind of not really done anymore. And the the speed uh, ramping of this film is off the charts. It's all over the place. And speed ramping meaning. You're filming it in less than 24 frames per second, and then you play it at 24 frames, and that gives up that like fast, that's uh, speed looking footage. It's like it's too, it's um the combat sequences. Yeah, yeah the action most sequences. of it though. And I was watching it again. I I knew the I, I think about the opening chase on foot off all that sped up, just barely. It looks like they shot 20 frames per second and then sped it up to 24. Uh, but it, it allows the action to be quicker, more propulsive. And in a way more engaging, but also kind of like, I don't know, it just kind of feels like fantastical in a way, and I love it. But I knew there was a lot of it in this film, but then watching it last night, I was like, there's so much speed revamping in this film. It's absurd, and it looks so good, and I've never seen a movie with this much in it. I looked it up. Uh, they The filmmakers estimate that 50 to 60% of the footage of this movie was shot in less than 24 frames per second. Whoa. And then sped up to 24 frames for a projection, which means that most of it was most of it was shot in about 20, 18 to 20 frames per second, and then they speed it up, and it just it, I found that to be stunning because most of it to me looked effortless and seamless, and was just I was just blown away by that fact. I'm blown away by again I keep bringing this up the the lore mythology that George Miller created with the characters in the world and his re, his reimagining or imagining of a crazy post-apocalyptic world that fights over resources like gasoline, bullets, and water. And I would love to just talk about some of the characters and just lore-type stuff just to like lay the foundation. Yeah, it's because so it's creative. Dense. It's, it's really so dense. so creative. Let's start off with Immortan Joe, formerly known as Colonel Joe Moore, was a veteran of the oil wars and a hero of the water wars. He formed a biker gang terrorizing the people. After the fall, his gang included henchmen dubbed Major Kalashikanov and a strategist, Deep Dog, which each battle the gang grew stronger by slaughtering the leaders of other gangs and stealing the woman. With that, his idea of bringing back society willingly took a dark turn. Eventually, he and his gang entered the Wasteland, where he would learn about the massive aquifer plant later known as the Citadel. Then he eventually got control of the Citadel after attacking it with people like the Bullet Farmer and the People Eater. So that's how he's created these relationships with these warlords. They're like allies. All in the area, basically. And he gave the Bullet Farmer the Bullet Farm. Like, that was a a gift that Immortan Joe gave to him because he helped him take over the Citadel and the water aquifer to get all the water and control of it. And this is, we, you can read about this in the or in the prequel yeah, book? Yeah, the, the comic books. The comic yeah, book? That's absolutely. really cool. I might, I might check that out because it's fascinating. Now, Imperator Furiosa. Well, I was going to say, oh, I'm sorry, Immortan Joe, it's, it's a great character, an excellent villain. I like how we don't actually ever see his real face. 
we never see his real face. And it kind of dehumanizes him in a way and makes him feel very monstrous because he is a monstrous human being. And someone, he understands that in order to control the people, you can control the water. And that, that first scene where he dumps that waterfall of water, it's so... It's so informative of what kind of human person and what kind of ruler he is because he knows that like it's not a practical way for people to gather water, just throwing it out there. And in a way, he's con- even though he's releasing it, he's making them still desperate for it. And also in a way, by just throwing it out there, he's he can he's going to make them turn on each other every day and make people, you know, commit acts of violence and even death and murder to get their water. So, he's created a mob and then every day he basically feeds that mob even more. Yeah, there's a lot of detail to him releasing the water. Not only has he turned himself into a deity, basically, and these people have come to the Citadel in search of water and get water from him pretty much every day. You know he's probably got an ocean that he's in control of. He only lets out a certain amount, not a ton. What's it go for, like 15 seconds tops? Most of it's getting wasted and going to get absorbed by the sun and into the sand and dirt, and you'll never get it. And then telling the people, don't get addicted to water. Meanwhile, behind him, there's a little pond. a little. They have a little pool of water, and they have grass and greenery and plants and all mm. the water you could ever need and drink. So he has turned himself into literally a god to these people. And you're right. That's great. We never see his face. The closest thing we get is when his face gets ripped off. Oh, yeah, it's great. <laughs> it's awesome. And he is a monster. Yeah, and it's it's just a terrific, terrific villain and one of the reasons why it works so well. And ironically, he and Tom Hardy never interact except for, like, firing a, a couple of shots at each other. That's really interesting. Yeah. That's a good point. And also, he's hated so much even though he's a god to these people that as soon as they see his dead body, they're like, let's go. He's, he's dead. dead. <laughs> Finally. Yeah. Now, Emperor Furiosa, a.k.a. Commander Furiosa, at the beginning of the film, she is Morton Joe's top commander and driver of his war rig and later returns to the Citadel as its would-be savior. She is highly intelligent, an extraordinary driver, a veteran in wasteland survival, and is exceptionally talented warrior. After she came to the Citadel, she was traded into Immortan Joe's hands to become one of his wives. He tried to breed with her, but she was barren. As a result, Immortan Joe gave Furiosa to one of his imperators, who let her ride on the war rigs and taught her the art of war. When her mentor was killed, she took over his command. Furiosa, beca- Furiosa became Immortan Joe's finest warrior and earned the rank of Imperator. She lost her arm during one of the battles while serving Immortan Joe. And there's even more backstory about how she comes from the green place with the, the That's mothers. That's who of- Chris Hemsworth's going to play. Who? Oh, probably her uh, father yeah, or mentor. The mentor. That's a good. Oh, I bet he's. I bet that's who he plays. Probably. Yeah. I've been trying. Is, is he gonna play a villain or is he gonna play? He, I bet he plays that guy. He never plays villains, you know. I bet he could be a good. Well, Spiderweb or Spiderhead, whatever that movie was called. He played the villain. Okay, yeah, I guess. But I didn't see it though. Yeah, I didn't see. That I heard either. it sucked. <laughs> <laughs> but I'd be curious about who he's gonna play. And so I think that seems to fit the bill for him. Yeah, it's actually a good point. Yeah. I totally forgot that he's going to be in that movie. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to say too much more about her background and how she got from the Greenlands to the Citadel because I want to save that for you all when you see Furiosa. They're going to answer all those yeah. questions. And I highly recommend checking out the comic book that they dropped the same year in 2015, which is basically a prequel to the events. I mean, this sounds like a fascinating backstory. I love it. I, I, I'm really looking forward to seeing the, the prequel now. That's fantastic. And, and, and I'm sorry. I was going to say that Charlize Theron is just fucking fantastic in this movie. And she's such a good actor. I, I had never seen her like this before, though. You know what I mean? She, she, this was before Atomic Blonde. This was before um, her new action franchise on Netflix. Um, she had done some tough roles before, but she is like an all-time action character in this movie. 
and I adore Furiosa's character, and, and the performance is fantastic. I'm, I, I love the character. I think it's a highlight of the film and one of the reasons why it works so much. Great character design, too, with the shaved head, the, the one arm, the mechanical arm, and then how she takes the grease from the steering wheel mm-hmm. and puts it all over her forehead to create kind of like her own war paint in yeah. a way. I'm also very curious about her past because she, the, the theme of redemption is spoken about multiple times between her and Max. And she, eventually, she, he, she tells him she's looking for redemption, and then he convinces her to go back to the Citadel as a way to find that redemption, redemption for both of them. And so I'm curious if maybe she's committed a lot of heinous acts in the past that she wants redemption for. Oh, absolutely. She's, so, she's, emperor, she's Immortal yeah. Joe's number one emperor, so, so that means that she's probably killed a lot of innocent people. So I, I would love to see, I'm, I'm very curious to see that backstory for her. For her, her desire for redemption is so strong in this. It must. She must have a horribly dark past. Absolutely. The, yeah. the, I mean, she survives. She's an expert at survival. In order to survive in the most harsh environments possible to human beings, you have to do harsh things a lot of the times, and that's what allowed her to eventually escape the Citadel with the breeders, with the Morton Joe's breeders. Now, one of my favorite groups of people in this film are the War Boys. War Boys! The Half-Life War, war Boys. Boys. Obviously, Nicholas Holt plays Nux, who is the lead War Boy for the film, for the characters. And the War Boys are handpicked at a young age by the guardians of the elevator platform at the Citadel and are indoctrinated as zealots in the cult of V8, with the Morton Joe as their <laughs> immortal leader. They were based on the Vikings of Scandinavia and the Japanese kamikaze pilots of World War II, they are completely loyal, blindly following their leader, never questioning the morality of their actions. They view death in service to Morton Joe as an honor. I live, I die, I, I live again. again. Becoming a war boy is a privilege, unbeknownst, however, to the subjects. The guardians of the elevator platform select healthy and strong individuals upon their descent into hordes of the wretched. In a deleted scene of the movie from Mad Max Fury Road, it is shown that the wretched want their children to be taken atop the Citadel, seeing it as the only chance for their children to survive. The wretched, I believe, are the people who are begging for water every day. That request is often denied in a rather brutal fashion. Now, the upbringing of the war boys involved children are given new names and become war pups. They are taught to believe in the cult of V8 and worship all things mechanical. They become mechanics, rev heads, or black thumbs, crafting all kinds of mechanical devices, usually involving vehicles and combat, however, are not allowed to go into battle yet. They have terrible health issues, and that's why they're called half-lifes, half-people basically, because they will die very young. If war pups survive long enough, they become war boys. Most of them, however, are plagued by cancer, the most common one being lymphoma. Others include others resulting in partial or complete blindness. They require blood transfusions to prolong their lives, and it's one of the reasons they hunt for unsuspecting wanderers of the wasteland such as Max to make blood bags out of Max's utility as a source of blood is what kept Nux alive after being captured. And I love how he says, right, uh, high, high octane, zero negative, universal donor, crazy blood, filling me up, something like that. And he's a, he's a black thumb. I actually have uh, the entire text of Max's tattoo that they give him. Oh, the, oh hear yeah, it. let's hear it. So the entire tattoo on Max's back is actually, there's a lot to it. They only, they only show it for a little bit. So it says, day 1245, high, HT 10 hands, 180 pounds, no name, no lumps, no bumps, full life clear, two good eyes, no busted limbs, piss okay, <laughs> genitals intact, multiple scars, Heals fast, O negative, 
High Octane, Universal Donor, Lone Road Warrior Rundown on the Powder Lakes, V8. No guzzoline, no supplies, isolate psychotic, keep muzzled. So it basically tells you, uh, it's, it's like a rap sheet. Uh, I don't know what you call it, like a medical rap sheet of, of everything that you need to know about Max uh, for when they're... There's actually like a interesting medical system they have working here. And yeah. there's like a, a doctor character that we see in the film. And that's, there's so much uh, complexity built into the world, so many layers to it. I just find it so fascinating. But yeah, he says, take your blood bag. He's muzzled. He's crazy. Exactly. Crazy blood <laughs> filling me up. <laughs> and then we have Gastown, which is a location that's integral to the plot of this film. Gastown is where Furiosa makes that secret deal to give the gasoline for safe passage basically through and the bikes i believe that they're supposed to get for traveling i think i can't remember um gaston is featured in the beginning of mad max fury road it serves as the town emperor furios was intended to visit before betraying Morton joe am i wrong wait what'd you say so gaston is the one that she doesn't go to exactly they were supposed sorry. to go to gaston to get My gasoline bad. for the citadel gotcha yeah. so gaston which is an ally of the citadel is blah 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 sorry hold on i I messed up i messed up so basically it's where the gas is (laughs) (laughs) furios's mission included offloading the war rigs cargo water in exchange for gasoline exactly so the citadel trades water for gasoline at gastown gotcha that's the main the main makes the detour i'm sorry she makes the detour to go east to get and escape the Citadel, basically, in yep. the area. And then we have the Bullet Farm, originally an abandoned land I'm a Bullet Farmer, motherfucker! <laughs> <In> a ba- <laughs> I'm a lead farmer, yeah, motherfucker! That's what it is. I'm a lead farmer, motherfucker! <laughs> originally an abandoned lead mine to the west of the Citadel, the Bullet Farm was refurbished into an arms factory and used to manufacture small arms, gunpowder, ammunition, and fuel. The Citadel's war effort, to fuel the Citadel's war effort against other gangs that roam in the wasteland, it was given to the Bullet Farmer, by Morton Joe, and then he eventually became the judge, guardian, and executioner of Bullet Farm. And I love the character design of the Bullet Farmer because he is head to toe covered in bullets, yeah, yeah. so many bullets. And then he even gets blinded later on the night sequence yeah. and is just firing guns. Firing bullets in every direction. He should have said, I'm a live bomber, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> I love how uh, the, the main resources for these places is it's either water, gas, or bullets. I mean, that's probably what it would be like yeah. when you think about the, it. Oh, yeah. Th- there would be no need to, uh, I mean, to produce other materials at all. Most, I feel like most post-apocalyptic worlds never really attack the importance of resources yeah water but gasoline and and oil specifically how important that would be to people and factions and tribes you could say in this kind of world and environment yeah and it makes a lot of sense especially with the world that he built in australia which is uh, nine was it 90 percent of australia is desert something like that uninhabitable desert quite a bit of is uninhabitable and then so if you imagine this world the cities are in ruin completely probably you can't live there and it's probably just nothing but destruction and so it makes sense that the majority of survivors are in various outskirts of this gigantic almost never-ending desert of australia and so i believe it's 50 years after the after the apocalypse so the first film takes place in 84 if i'm correct 1984 and then this film I mean, obviously, Max is an age, visibly, because Hardy's about the same age as Mel Gibson was, I would say, in, in number three. And so he hasn't aged a day, you could say. I mean, 
but that's that's what strength of the film. It doesn't. You don't need to have a six-year-old Max for it to make sense. The movie. So no, but this movie Fury Road takes place in about 2050. Okay. Oh that's, wow. That's, that's the year because the old films they're real, they're from the 80s. A few years. It, it, the it, they opened the first film with a, a few a few years from now is what it says. Is that what? Yeah, it says a few years from now. <laughs> I mean, so they never, time is relative. <laughs> George Miller never spe- specifically says date, but there are dates on signs here and there. They, you can kind of generalize what, what the era is, but ultimately you can't really pin it down because he never specifically says true. Wow, we're already about 40 minutes in. How about we run to our intermission, wow, yeah. Let's run on over. Let's, let's, let's uh, drive over there let's with drive our V8. With our, with the, <laughs> the <Devola>! V8. <laughs> we'll Witness me! All chrome, Witness me! All chrome and shiny. Let's head to the intermission and sacrifice ourselves for Valhalla where Immortan Joe is waiting for us. And then we'll come back to Mad Max for your road. <laughs> but before we continue, the best way to support Raiders of Lost Podcast is to leave those five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can leave five-star reviews on both. Apple Podcasts, you can leave written reviews. We love to read them out during the intermission. I have one for you in a couple minutes. Also, the best way to support us besides that is to become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of Lost Podcast. We have five different tiers of membership, $2, $5, $10, $25, and $100. Every single tier of patronage gets you a weekly bonus episode. Besides that, also the weekly chat. So you get the weekly chat every Wednesday, mm-hmm. and then a bonus episode of the show every like Thursday or Friday that we drop in. And then if you're a Godfather tier patron, you get a third bonus episode. You get to pick the topic yeah. for that one. A yeah. custom episode for you. $10 gets you access to our Discord. That's where we do watch parties. We just watched American Psycho the That's other great. night. It was, last it was a blast. <laughs> it was called <laughs> Africa. Oh, Africa. And then on <laughs> that $100 tier... Has a ton of extra perks. Some of my favorites include a personal watch party with us, just us three. And then also, you get to come on the show after three months. Fun guest segment during the intermission. And you get lots of free merch. Lots of free merch. Oh, yeah. So become a patron today at patreon.com slash Raiders of Lost Podcast. This episode is also sponsored by our great friends at movieposters.com. You know them. The number one place to get your posters online today. Be sure to use our promo code Raiders10 to get 10% off your order today if you want to get a mad max poster from any of the films head on over there they have also have a selection of pretty much every movie and tv show imaginable in their poster library high quality stuff everyone we have dozens and dozens of these posters all over our set in home and bedrooms that i couldn't count how many we have they're fantastic it is the best place to get your posters online so be sure to head on over to their website movieposters.com and use our promo code raiders10 Take a temperature off your order today. Now, let's head into cool now. Mad Max Fury Road's intermission and begin with the movie quote competition. You ready? Ready. I don't care about the money. I'm pulling back the curtain. I want to meet the wizard. Say it again. I don't care about the money. I'm pulling back the curtain. I want to meet the wizard. I don't know. I try to do a, a Michael Douglas impression. That's the game. Oh, nice. Nice one. We movie. talked about it last night. Yeah. I should have known. Nick was not, Nick brought it up. Mm-hmm. Great movie. All right, here's my Oh, quote. no, we were doing a bracket. That's why. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but last night we, we were talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> what have you... <clears throat> what you have to understand is four days ago, he was only my brother in name. And this morning, we had pancakes. <laughs> Say it one more time. What you have to understand is, four days ago, he was only my brother in name. And this morning, we had pancakes. Yeah, it sounds really familiar. Good quote, I don't know. 
Rain Man. That's it. That's it, man. All right, Anthony. Guess this movie release year. Rock and Roller. 2009. 2008. Ah. Tom Hardy's in that, yeah. Plays Handsome Rob. Yeah. Wait, what was your quote again? It's from The Game. The Game. Uh, I was thinking, yeah, you didn't do it. Tom Hardy. Did a little mix of yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, a little mix yeah. of things. All right, guess this movie release year. Rain Man. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. 2005? Rain Man? 1996? <laughs> 2005. I'm just trying to think of how how young he was in that movie. Who? Um, what's his name? Dustin. Well, actually, Tom. I'm thinking about how young Tom. Actually, no, it's like Jerry Maguire, Tom age. So 96. 88. 88? Is that old? Yeah. Holy shit! 2005 was bad. Oh my god. All right, all right. He, he's not that that funny. Was, you're almost 30 years off. That's bad. That's like all time bad. Not right? 30 years off. 20 years off. Sorry, yeah. sorry. But still, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> this is pretty terrible. I'm just trying to think of how young I haven't seen it in a while, and at least I know the movie. <laughs> Tom and Dustin, you did it, man. All right, my own ass. Moving on. <laughs> movie pop quiz time. If he had that, he can settle down over there. I'm settled. He's settled. Charlie Theron has been nominated for three Academy Awards and has won one. Can you name the films and what she won for? She won for Monster. One. Um, young adult. Nope. Oh. Um, hold on. What, was... what else was she nominated for? I'll give you a hint. One came out pretty recently. Um, I'm uh, blanking. So in 2006, she was nominated for North Country. And then 2020, she was nominated for Bombshell. Oh, Bombshell. Yeah, with Nicole Kidman and Margot. I did not see North Country. I don't know. Yeah. I f you would think she would have more. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like... Well, she does. Ha she has done a lot of action movies. Yeah. So I think she, she has, like, done... She, I mean, she, Aeon Flux sci-fi action, so... Furious movies. She's yeah. been done a ton of stuff. But, yeah. I mean, three nominations is still really... I know, I was just... I mean, I was expecting more. Not that... I mean, just saying she's so good, you know? I agree. But I would, I would say maybe she just, it's because she doesn't always choose Oscar movies. You know, she yeah. likes to do what she likes to do instead of always just like trying to chase an Oscar. Well, I wonder how many does Tom Hardy have? Because they're. Tom? Coley's does he have movie. any? That's what I'm thinking. Does, have, I don't does think Tom he has any. have a nomination? He's got to have one. Okay, he has one for The Revenant. Oh, right, Revenant, yeah. So, I mean, it's tough sometimes for some actors. I mean, you think of Tom Hardy, he's one of the best working, one Oscar nomination. I mean, the fact that he didn't get any recognition for Bronson is insane. Yeah, Bronson's a ridiculously good performance. Yeah. I mean, that's wild. I think he's gotten plenty of awards, UK awards recognition, though, for both for TV movies and movies out there. He had uh, the BAFTA TV award for Rising Star for Stuart, A Life Backwards, that he did with, with Benedict. Benedict Cumberbatch. Yeah, yeah. But other than that, BAFTAs, he has... Let me see. Did he get nominated for Venom? No, he didn't get nominated <laughs> for Venom. 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 <laughs> no, not not a single BAFTA nomination besides wow. that Rising Star Award. Not even for The Revenant. Well, it makes a lot of American movies, so it makes sense. All right. How many? I have a similar question. How many Oscar nominations does Dustin Hoffman have? I'm gonna say seven nominations. That is correct. Wow. Thanks. 
Can you name the, the wins? He has uh, two wins. The wins. Did he win for the graduate? Um, he did not. Nah, he didn't win for the graduate. I'm going to go Rain Man. Yes. And then also, definitely not meet the Fockers. <laughs> <laughs> All the President's Men. No. Kramer versus Kramer. Oh, man. Yeah. yeah that that movie sense. almost won the big five. Yeah, that's a good it's a great movie. I might watch that soon. It's a fucking great movie. It's a great, great movie. <laughs> All right, let's get to any haters, any Raider haters or unsubscribes, Anthony. We got some uh, unsubscribes. I got. I, I love the Raider hater name. It's fucking fantastic. <laughs> I love it. All right, here we go. <clears throat> I, I, there's a on TikTok. There's a weather guy saying talking about why it's so cloudy and cold in LA right now. Mm-hmm. He's talking about how there's like a, a ocean oceanic. Um, stream that's been over LA for it just happens every once in a while that's why it's been unusually cold and cloudy here all year so far and then uh, I wrote in the comments September is gonna still gonna be 100 every day <laughs> and then Outdoor Gabe wrote 100 every day unsubscribed <laughs> <laughs> I love it when the unsubscribes are on just random TikTok posts and not our content it's just great it, it, ma- it makes my day <laughs> and then Rhino Vanique Cowd Sorry, that's a long... I, I don't think I said it correctly. But they wrote, Close is actually a Belgian movie, not a French movie. Unsubscribe. Wow, how could you make that mistake, Anthony? And I wrote, It's basically the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, our European friends, I do not agree with Anthony. But that's a funny joke. <laughs> Jay Ross in our A24 episode also wrote, I almost unsubscribed when I heard no mention of the Northman. Then... Through further investigation, I realized it wasn't an A24 movie. <laughs> you guys are still safe for now. <laughs> Great list. Yeah, mis- misconception is not. That was, um, what production company was that? Universal. Universal, and then there's another main one. It was, it was, um, I'll, I'll, I'll look it up. And then, um, I made, uh, one of those bracket showdowns on TikTok for movies, and George Carmi wrote, Boomer, unsubscribed. <laughs> <laughs> Focus features. Focus, thought, yeah. Yeah, 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 which Universal owns. Yeah, this they're uh, they're under the umbrella, and then we have. That's it so far. All right, that, cool. Yeah. We have a great five star review on Apple Podcasts written out from Mom three eight nine zero. I wonder if this is our mom. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> Love these guys. Been listening, watching these guys since their first ten episodes. They've really made me look at movies differently and gave me a lot of other people. A community to all talk about movies we love and whatnot. Thanks, guys. Oh, that's so sweet. You're very welcome, Mom. Three eight nine zero. Appreciate you so much and the review. We appreciate you taking the time to do that. Now, my streaming recommendation for this episode is going to be a movie that just got put onto Netflix for June 2023. Hannah, starring Saoirse Ronan, Eric Bana. It is awesome action movie. She plays like a, a super mass, like a super weapon that the government's trying to hunt down. She's kick ass. It's excellent. It's basically, film. Jason Bourne, basically, for a teenage yeah. girl. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a good way to describe yeah, yeah. it. But there's some great action sequences. Yeah. And there's this awesome long take, long take fight scene with Eric Bana in a subway. It's it's sick. Yeah, it's awesome. I love that movie. Joe Wright made it. He's a big fan of using a few big long takes in all of his movies. So that's why there's that. Also, Kate Blanchett is the villain. Yeah, she's great. My streaming recommendation is a very heavy one. It's the Danish film. The Hunt, starring Maz Mikkelsen. I've seen it a couple of times. This is my third time watching it, and man, it is—it's just like one of the better films of the, like the last ten years or so. It's just unbelievable. It's fifteen years or so. It's, it's an old movie. Wait, I think it was 07. Might be. 
older. 2005. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> no, it's not, too, not that old. Um, no, actually, I think it was 2012. It might have come out, but um, it's an incredible film. It's like the one of the greatest tragedies I've ever seen, uh, and it's just the director also recently made another round with Maz, which was nominated for foreign language film a couple years ago. If you haven't seen The Hunt, check it out. Sorry, you, you, you set my Siri off while you were talking. What'd she say? She's pulling up information on a director. I think Joe Wright. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, watch The Hunt. It's not available for free, but um, if you have a certain subscription on Amazon, you can watch it. Otherwise, it's just a $3 rental. There are places to find oh, it. Oh, there are. There are. But let's get back into... Valhalla and V8. Yeah, speaking of Valhalla and V8, what I like is how Immortan Joe has basically taken pieces of historical lore and myths and combined it into this this uh, mythology that he's created for controlling this population. Uh, Valhalla, obviously, it's Viking lore, and then combining that with like high octane V8, Guzzeline, <laughs> Guzzeline, and and the warriors. Like, instead of a Viking warrior dying in battle to be taken into Valhalla, it's like the war boys want to die on the highway, chromed out, and that will take them into uh, Valhalla. So taking pieces of historical myths and creating his own with it, I think it was so brilliant for the villain to do. I will carry you myself <laughs> into the gates of Valhalla. Mediocre! Shiny and chrome. Let's get into some of the production stuff of this film because it's exceptional. Cinematography is astounding in this movie. Some of the best shots I've seen in years for an action film. I think some of my favorites are are the wides of the war parties and the guys like going sideways and, and flailing on those giant poles. That was such an insane shot of a film. I've never seen anything like that before in my all entire life. All done in camera. All, yeah, all done practical. About 80% of everything you're seeing in this movie is practical. It's it, My favorite one is the reveal of them because it's... Oh, so, it's, like, it's like out of focus. It's, yeah, yeah, that's my favorite shot. And then uh, we're, we're, on, we're watching the war party and then the guy is swinging, come into the foreground. And you're like, holy shit, there's more to this? It's insane. And then also the Mirage-esque shot of the war party approaching very far away. I gotta say, Excellent. my favorite shot is the, the dust storm because... Approaching it or while you're in it? The wide. Gotcha. Because what, what they did with the camera was they, it's a, they do a zoom out, like a long zoom out. And the the war party is pretty large on screen, and then they start pulling out. <laughs> they start pulling back the focus, <laughs> the camera. What's so funny about that? Anthony? Nothing. <laughs> and then they start zooming out, <laughs> and then you see the real scale of the storm because eventually, by the end of the shot, when it's complete, the lens is it's completely wide. The war party and the vehicles are specks on the screen. And the storm is still it, the camera isn't even capturing all of the storm, and it just it just it's monumentally big. It's like a like a apocalyptic storm of the biggest scale imaginable. And I, man, when I watched that was like it's a jaw dropping moment of the film. Well, while this film has so many things that you've never seen before, really in a movie on this scale, or just the concepts and ideas of these set pieces. And I think staying on the storm, one of my favorite shots of the whole film is when they're basically, they're going through it and there's just a couple cars left and Furiosa manages to like turn into one of the, the war party cars that are on their tail and it starts to explode. And then it basically gets swept up kind of in like a tornado yeah. wind cyclone. And you see the people <laughs> and the explosions 
flying everywhere through this cyclone. It's it's fascinating. It's like fireworks of explosions. Insane. Yeah. Cinematography was done by John Seal, who is an exceptional cinematographer. He did The Talented Mr. Ripley, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, Dead Poets Society, Cold Mountain, Witness, The English Patient. He's been working for decades in Hollywood. and He, he actually do- came out of retirement to do this. Yeah, he doesn't do that many anymore. And, and this was, I'm sure, George Miller really wanted him for this movie. And, man, he nailed it. Knocked out of the park, especially using six different kinds of cameras to capture, to film a movie that's not easy to do to blend them all together. But also because George Miller knew how much editing was going to be involved in the film, to understand that the composition of the shots was paramount in its importance. You know what I mean? Yeah, and they captured a ridiculous amount of footage in this yeah. movie. Um, I believe it took the editor three months to watch all of the footage. That's how much they shot. His partner, Margaret Sixel. Yeah. And also, it... She was the average edit for any of the previous Mad Max movies, which are heavily edited films because of all the action, 18 edits per minute. This film has 22 edits per minute, which is a lot. That means that, you know, it's the, the average for b- being 22 edits a, a minute is just absurd. The, the level of cuts and the amount of shots. But when you watch this film, you're like, from a practical standpoint, you're like, how do they get this many setups of this many shots of so many action sequences? And it's just mind-boggling to see how much was actually filmed. And so it makes sense. You would you would want a veteran, experienced cinematographer with a team that's been doing this for a long time to handle that because of you're not just doing 12 camera setups for a 10-minute scene, which is pretty simple. You're doing literally thousands of camera setups. And it's just a, a bulk of intense um, craftsmanship and and logistics and understanding how to... I'm sure they shoot quickly once the stunts are set up. They can only do so many takes, especially the really big stunts and especially the crashes. You can only do so many takes of a huge stunt. So you're going to make sure that you trust the DP to make sure that they're getting the right footage in, in making sure that it's being captured in as high quality and as artistic and visually stunning of a composition as possible. So hiring a veteran was seemed to be a no-brainer. And then Margaret Sixel won the Academy Award for Best Editing, deservedly so. Miller hired her, his partner, because he wanted a female editor for this film so that it wouldn't look like a typical action movie because he basically said that if I hired a male editor, a guy would just edit it like every other action movie that's ever been made. But he wanted a woman's touch, basically, to edit it in a different way than every other action movie you've ever seen. And I think it really added a new quality that Margaret brought to it. And also, the music is really outstanding by Junkie XL. And he was a he's a former Hans Zimmer protege. He collaborated with Hans on Batman vs. Superman and uh, Justice League as well, the, f- the first version of Justice League. And then he did all of the Zack Snyder Justice League by himself, I believe. Um, but he's an interesting composer. He com- he used like these this incredible combination of string and percussion um, with some electric guitar, and it just sounds absolutely dynamite. And I love, I love, love, love the music to this. It's a great uh, workout track as well, the soundtrack as well. But I think it adds a whole new dimension to the film that I think other other composers might have done maybe repetitive things, but Junkie XL is a very specific kind of composer. No one really makes music like him. So I think he was a perfect fit for the world. Yeah, I didn't know you worked out. 
<laughs> I've been known to, uh, you know, curl a couple of 10-pounders here and there. And the dynamic between Max and Furiosa really makes this movie special. And the characters, again, are, are terrific in this film. And they have a rough relationship at first because Max is captured. And his goal at first, his goal is always to survive. And he wants to escape the situation the best way possible. Ideally alone, because he likes to make his own way. But he will carry along some stragglers. And him and Furiosa throughout the course of the film, it takes them a while to warm up to each other and to trust each other. And I think Max understands that she's my best bet at survival for the majority of this journey until they get their basically freedom when they reach the Greenlands that are no longer green. They've reached the mothers and they've gone through the Greenlands, which are now salt and barren and poisoned and have those crows that walk around on those stilts, basically. But their d- dynamic is terrific, and, and you know, eventually when they start to trust each other and work together, that's what they both understand is my our best bet of survival is to work together and be a team. And Furiosa, she's failed every time she's tried to make it to their green place. We don't know how many times she's done it. We just know from a, di- a line of dialogue that she's tried several times, but now that she has a war rig, it's her best chance to make it to the green place. That's why you can argue she's been buying her time, working for Morton Joe, rising up the ranks, becoming his number one imperator, his number one commander, until she gets the opportunity to escape, to reach the green place she never would have been able to without this war party rig. And man, they have a great fight. Oh, it's awesome. Their, their fight is fantastic. It's interesting because Nux is chained to, to Max, yeah. as well as... Uh, Furiosa doesn't have her mechanical arm with her, as well as they have the brides there. So it's just a great combination. There's a lot going on. The water mm-hmm. being used as a weapon as well. It's, it's, it's awesome. It's, there's a there's a lot to it, and that's what I like about the fight. It's not it's not uh, simple, and the logistics of it is really complex, and it's just really well choreographed and impactful. And I I just love it's a it's like a its own narrative that fight. You know what I mean? There's so much to it. And so many layers to it. There's a lot of like little secret things and Easter eggs that George Miller puts in this film, whether it's the knife that is inside the gear shifter that Furiosa eventually uses but then gets stabbed with uh, later on the film, as well as the secret gun under there underneath the, the car, the kill switches. So lots of little clues and Easter eggs that he comes back to later on that are integral to plot points. I like when he starts gathering all the guns that she has laced around the interior <laughs> of the truck, and he fills up that whole bag with guns. It's great. Now, <clears throat> Charlize and Theron and, and oh yeah, let's Tom hear Hardy. The, let's hear the the juice, man. Now, obviously, they're both incredible actors and very experienced. Um, you know, members they're of professionals. Of, yeah, they're they're great, great histories. They both have incredible filmographies, and audiences love both actors. However. They didn't just not get along, but they actually despised each other on set during the production of this film. And it wasn't until the very like tail end of filming where they were beginning to get along somewhat, but they um they never got along at all. And I have uh, a few excerpts excerpts from interviews of cast and crew. Um, but pretty much from what I could gather reading about the story was that um, they have extremely different ways of working. Uh, as actors and what they like to do, how they like to prepare and how they like to carry out scenes. Now, obviously uh, a good portion of the film is them sitting in the front seats of that truck. And you can imagine it's probably at least three months of them sitting side by side in that interior and their personalities in their work styles did not mesh at all and actually, and actually contrasted and conflicted constantly. And it got to the point where, 
They were yelling at each other on a regular basis. They were fighting daily. Uh, they were not getting along whatsoever. Um, and in a way, in a lot of ways, they resented each other. And even people said that the fight that they had, the the fight that Furiosa and, and Max have, like the the two days they filmed that scene, like the tension was boiling, and you could see like people on set were saying that they looked like they really wanted to kill each other, <laughs> and like and people were saying like they they really look like they hate each other. And I have a bunch of excerpts from interviews from cast and crew confirming all of this. And so Nicholas Holt play, said in an interview, it was a tense atmosphere at times. It was kind of like you're on summer holidays. And the adults in the front seat of the car are arguing the whole time. <laughs> Charlize Theron wrote, uh, it was like two parents at the front of the car. <laughs> we were either fighting or we were icing each other. I don't know which one was worse. And they had to deal with this all in the back. Speaking about the younger actors in the back seat. It was horrible. We should have not, we shouldn't have done that. And we should have been better about it because they were veterans. You know, they, they, they were the, the grownups, you could say, of the group. And I can own up to that. Rosie Huntington-Whitley said, It was really interesting to sit in a truck for four months while Tom and Charlize, who have completely different approaches to their craft. Um, John Houston, the, the editor of the film, said, We would get daily sometimes for specific sequences if we needed to cut a shot longer. And some of that was the chain wrench fight by the tanker. And boy, fucking howdy was it clear that those two hated each other. <laughs> they didn't want to touch each other, and they didn't even want to look at each other when they weren't filming. And they wouldn't even face each other if the camera wasn't rolling. That's how uh, tense it was. PJ Voden wrote, The day that they were rehearsing the fight scene, when they first meet, you could see the tension in the air. It was unbelievable. Tom Clapman, a production runner, a PR, wrote, Tom was more in his trailer a lot of the time and would come out for takes and sometimes not on time either. And um, I, I kept finding instances of Tom Hardy being late to set um, hanging out in his trailer for too long, and Charlize, who is a consummate professional, always early, always ready to go, she was uh, getting to be very tired of Tom Hardy being late, of of being stuck in his trailer, uh, because Tom Hardy apparently went method with the role and was very antisocial and was not easy to collaborate with for anyone. He was actually holding up the set uh, many times and making the set last longer. So he was kind of he, you gotta say he was acting like a diva for sure. And then Tom Hardy said, in hindsight, I was in over my head. Uh, the pressure was on both of us, and it was overwhelming at times. Um, what she needed was a better, more experienced partner out of me, and that's something that can't be faked. Uh, however, I'd like to think that I'm older and could rise to that occasion now. And blah, blah, blah. A couple of them are basically a little bit of the same stuff. Um, there was a point where... Okay, so there's a point where they had a screaming match... Uh, she went into the war rig to start to get ready for the scene they were going to film, and she waited three hours in there for him to come out to his trailer. When he finally came out, she ran out at him and started berating him, and they had a huge screaming match in front of the whole crew. And then after that, she asked for the production to call in a female producer from Warner Brothers to come in uh, and be a mediator between the two of them because she felt extremely uncomfortable, and she felt like she was she was kind of unsafe in the working environment being around Tom Hardy because he was being so aggressive at times. Whoa. Drama. Yeah. It's pretty intense. Lots of drama. Anthony coming in with the fire. Yeah. It's, I mean, it works. It works on screen, I guess. It does. That yeah. fight's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, back to the plot, unless you have anything else. 
I would say that, I mean, I'm, I'm sure they're fine now from what I could see from press interviews and um, red carpets and all the press junkets. They seem to, they get along, but I highly doubt Charlie Theron would ever want to work with Tom Hardy again. Interesting, interesting. And then stuff. it could also be a reason why maybe Warner Brothers is hesitant to greenlight a Mad Max sequel with Tom Hardy. Maybe. But let's get back, let's get to the plot a little bit more because it's really solid. And so basically, Furiosa's plan is to escape with the breeders of Immortan Joe that she rescues from the bank vault prison that they're in at the Citadel. I love the the fucking safe. It's so cool. It's crazy. And then bring them to the Greenlands where she grew up, where she was born. Unfortunately, eventually they make it there after some fights and some action sequences and attacks. The Greenlands have died they passed them at night they were the salt fields they've been poisoned the water was poisoned and there's nowhere to go so the remaining mothers were there that's who they found at the end of the film in the third act basically and they have all those bikes and they have supplies and basically their plan is to just drive across the salt for as long as they can which is 160 days to hopefully find a place that's has uh habitable and that they can live and settle down in and Max, he's going to go his own way after helping them get to this point. He makes his own way, like he says. One of those bikes is his. However, on their journey through the salt mines, he comes back, and Max has a great plan where if we just go back to where you came from, go back to the Citadel, Immortan Joe won't see it coming. It's unprotected. It's unguarded. You can get control of the Citadel and take control of the water and take control of the whole entire area. And then we can defeat Immortan Joe. And then you can have your your Greenland because there's green there and there's water there. And they both can find redemption. Exactly. Because he's haunted by his past. He's haunted by the ghosts of the people he couldn't save. And I love the surrealist um, visions he's having. And they all, they're also like premonitions in a way because when the little boy, remember he, in, early in the film, he, he brings his hand up to his forehead. And then he's like, what the hell was that vision? But then he does the same thing. The boy shows up again puts his hand up, and it saves his life when the arrow is shot in his head. You know what I remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's a premonition that kind of saves his life. And Tom Hardy, I think, is excellent in this role. It was originally going to be Mel Gibson again, though, because George Miller wanted to make this film in 2007. Actually, earlier than that. No, I'm sorry, not 2007. They wanted to make this film in, like, 2002, 2003. However, Pick a year, Anthony. Sorry, oh, I'm just, <laughs> my date's right there. However... Um, the effects of 9-11 actually destroyed the economy in Australia in a lot of ways. And it prevented, and it actually caused the value of the Australian dollar to plummet. And so the film became far too expensive for them to make at all. And so they actually had to hold up shop and delay it for many, many years. And so by the time George Miller was ready to start production, he felt that Mel Gibson had aged out of the role. And so that's when he started looking for a younger Max and then eventually settling on Tom Hardy in this role. Gotcha. That's inter interesting stuff. He also said that 90% of the uh, effects in this film are practical. Whether, in camera practical. Whether it be all the crashes, all of the explosions, a lot of the fire, uh, pretty much all the fire is real. Even the fire coming out of the electric guitar is real. The the guy playing that said it was, it was real. None of that was CGI. It's what I find so impressive about the film in... I like how he does this, you know how he does the speed ramping. You can actually see the real speed in which they shot some of the stuff because it will kind of go slow motion a little bit. Uh, not quite like Snyder slow-mo, like in the middle of an action scene for a few seconds, but like it definitely slows down a little bit. 
You see that happen during some of the major crashes, but just the absolute carnage and mayhem, metal being ripped apart and steel and iron just being thrashed to bits in this film. It's still to this day, like, there are shots in this movie where last night I was like, oh my god, like, mouth agape, like, holy fuck, I can't believe they did that, that's unbelievable. And probably the most impressive crash in the film, it's actually towards the end when they are escaping the war party on their way to the Citadel, and then it's the major crash that basically destroys the war, the war party behind them, you know what I mean? Where Nux takes the big war rig and he just spins it on its side and it crashes. They did that. That that was real and practical. Obviously, there wasn't like 40 vehicles behind it in real life, and they just composited the other crashes behind it, and then they built off of that. But they really did turn over that 18-wheeler going at that high speed. What's interesting, though, is... The way they did it was um, they, they built this Nux stunt, dubby, stunt double dummy in the front seat of the car because the actual stunt driver was in a protected casing um, further back in the truck so that when it crashed, she would be safe. So uh, in the front seat was actually a dummy that was Nux. And so when he crashed the 18-wheeler, everybody thought that for a moment that it was actually the stunt driver oh who was like crushed <laughs> and they're like oh my god is he dead because they forgot that he was actually in a, a confined space in the back part of the truck really controlling the vehicle from behind so the practicality the stunt work but but most notably all the crashes in this movie it's just i've i never seen anything like it before on this scale and it's just absolutely mind-boggling, but also completely... It's just so glorious to behold on screen. And I think he teases it so well at the opening of the film. Obviously, it's Max's narration opening the world up, eats the lizard, then <laughs> here's the war party coming for him, the wanderers who are looking for blood banks on the desert, and they flip his car. It's a, it's one of the longest shots in the movie, actually, is the mm -hmm. car flipping. Yeah. It's like five or six seconds. It's awesome. It's one of the best car flips I've ever seen. It's it's terrific. Yeah. But it's just, just a tease, really, of what's to come. Mm-hmm. It's pretty awesome. And it's like, then the, the war party is slowly teased. You know what I mean? Yeah. We, we get bits and Little pieces. Little war party, yeah. then it's bigger and bigger. And then by the finale, the final act, it's like all three war parties are combined into one war party. Yeah, it's just and, fucking madness. And speaking of war parties, I like how it's like a war party that would exist in this world instead of, you know, a war party with drums or, or instruments to get ready for when they're going into battle. What are they doing? They're playing rock and roll. <laughs> ready to go. Let's go. High octane. <laughs> it's so cool. But the third act is bombastic, incredible action set piece with them going through the war party to get back to the Citadel. The death of Min Morton Joe is epic and disgusting. It's redemption for Furiosa making it to the Citadel, getting control of the water. It's a really incredible ending to this film. But we also forgot to talk about the night for day, day for night sequence, which is just, it, it really works. And obviously... The blue, it's like, that's not what night looks like. But for this world that George Miller created, the high contrast, the high saturation, it fits perfectly. And then after about a minute of it, you, your eyes completely adjust to it and you accept that this is nighttime. I, I, this is an instance where I can understand why maybe Tom Hardy and some of the other actors were unsure about what was going on because they were filming in the middle of the day and this is supposed to be nighttime. And how is this going to work? How is it going to look? So I can understand why maybe... He doesn't have the vision that George Miller has in understanding uh, post-production and how they can really make it look day for night. And man, I love these sequences because what they do, and it's really smart, is there'll be, so it'll just be the blue day for night and it's nighttime, but then there'll be like someone holding a lantern 
and they'll be saturated normally. You know what I mean? In like, orange. Yeah, exactly. Because that was that's the raw footage. And then, so they isolate that part of the shot, whether it be like um, Abby, I think Abby Lee at one point in the car is holding a lantern and like two, her and two of the other girls are like lit normally and colored normally with like just neutral, like normal skin tones and the orange warm light from the flame. But then everything around them is blue, just complete blue. So what they're doing is they're isolating just that little area, keeping that as it was shot. And then everything outside of that little spot, they just desat- they desaturate and color it blue. Is that's how they maintain that because that that orange flame isn't like it's not filming at night. It's not lighting them up at night. It was all daytime, and they just like isolate that little bit. Don't color correct that blue, but color correct everything else blue. Color correct it to orange because yeah. the only way that the blue Sorry, works yeah, orange, at yeah. night yeah. is because of how vibrant and orange the desert mm-hmm. daytime scenes. Otherwise, if it was not vibrant and orange. It would look odd to have just a blue night, but they contrast so well opposites on the color wheel, blue and orange, that it looks fabulous. Yeah, like I said earlier, we wouldn't accept it really if it wasn't for the high saturation of all the daytime being so vividly saturated. Exactly. And it's just like, it's just, I've never seen the desert look like that before. And it's, there's just something incredible about it. And they... They really doubled down on it with the marketing. They saw how strong the imagery was. And so all the posters, all the marketing tools, super high contrast, super high saturation and vividry, vividly um, saturated images. And it's just like they understood like this is the strength of the movie for to get audiences excited. Yeah. And the art and posters are incredible. There's actually a really funny joke in this movie, too. I think there's really like really only one joke or, or there's a couple funny moments, but when the mothers are talking to them, they see a satellite pass overhead, and everyone's like, "Yeah, we've heard about those." <laughs> and then the mothers are like, "Everyone had a show everyone in the old days, and that they're sending shows through the through the satellites. That's how they would send them. So everyone had a show, and they probably don't even know what a show is." Yeah, I was like, "We have that's us. I have a show. I watched it last. Night. I was like, I have a show. It's true." <laughs> but um. And Max saves Furiosa's life. Yes. You know, yeah. I thought that's that's really incredible. They well, they save, save each, each other, other multiple, multiple times. times. Jinx! <laughs> <laughs> I love Furiosa saving Max as he's falling off the truck while getting stabbed and holding him. And then also, and then obviously Max saves her by opening up her lungs with the knife wound saying, I'm sorry, I'm about to do this. And then saves her again after that when she is about to die again. Yeah. Mad Max is uh, one of the more interesting franchises, uh, and like I said earlier, it wasn't actually how George Miller initially imagined it. George Miller, his job before becoming a director was actually he was an ambulance driver, and he was inspired by his time as an ambulance driver to make the the first Mad Max film. It wasn't called Mad Max, but it was about a man who traveled to horrific crash sites and began losing his mind after seeing so much death and destruction. And he was a journalist. So that was the original idea for Mad Max and what that story was. And then he came up with the idea of what if he's a cop? And then he built off that of what if he's a cop and there's an energy crisis and and the world is like falling into mayhem and chaos. So that's where the story of it. There was the original nuggets of Mad Max came from him. Being an ambulance driver. It's like bringing out the dead. Scorsese's yeah, movie starring very much, cage. Very much so, yeah. Absolutely. Losing his mind It's interesting. Just, it's interesting to see how it evolves. And we actually got a, a fun message from a fan about the filming location. He lives right near Mad Max's, Max's house in the first film. Oh, very cool. One second. Still there and everything? You visited? Yeah, let me pull it up real quick. One second. Pull it up, man. 
Pull it up. Just gonna wait here. Awkward. Sorry, we get so many DMs. Just search Mad Max. Can I do that? In yeah, the you DMs? can search keywords in DMs, so it'll pull oh, up really? messages that had that keyword. Boomer. I didn't know you could do that on Instagram. Yeah. Mad Max. If if he said Mad Max in his message. Or like, oh like, yeah, yeah. Found- <laughs> there you go. Man, the whiz over here. That's I'm- crazy. Okay. <laughs> Alex Lopez movies because I posted our, our review on Letterboxd on our story and uh, he said that scenes of the original Mad Max was filmed next to his house and so I sent a photo gif of Mel Gibson in the first Mad Max with the, his house behind him where he lives in the movie and he said that's he said that's exactly it he said back then the house that Max lived in it, it was bought and used for the film and it was the only house in the area and the rest the surrounding area around it was all dirt and it was the only house in like several miles, and um, he lives right right by it. Very cool. Yeah, small world, man. Small world. You got anything else on Mad Max Fury Road, Anthony? I got some fun facts. I think <clears throat> everyone would love to hear that. <laughs> the flame shooting guitarist is Australian artist, artist and musician Sean Hope, Sean Hape, better known artist. as artist, <laughs> artist, better Sean Hape, better known as Iota. In an interview with Vice, he said the guitar weighed 132 pounds. He was only able to use it because he was all wired up, obviously. Yeah. Um, and it was shot with real gas-powered flames, which he controlled using the whammy bar. That is sick. <laughs> he, also, he also met and married my Riley Coe while making the film. Speaking of on-set romances, the stunt doubles for Charlize Theron and Tom Hardy met, fell in love, and got married. Very sweet. And they Very met sweet. on this movie. Actually, so editor, editor Margaret Sixel, who we talked about earlier— like you said, it took her three months to watch the footage. There was roughly 470 hours of footage to edit. Wow. That's crazy. So just watching and logging that footage took her three months. Near the movie's end, Max tells the unconscious Furiosa, my, my name is Max. That's my name. At the same time, he performs some facial tics, eyebrow raises, twitches, and squints. This is a nod to Mel Gibson's style of acting, who used this save technique to communicate a crazed manic look for Max in the earlier films. This movie is actually also shot chronologically order in sequence, which is pretty rare. Wow. Also, they're shooting... They shot Furiosa on film, 35mm. Oh, the new one? Yeah, I saw the the clapper. They have a photo of it on IMDb. That's like the only only photo of Furiosa on the page. And it says 35mm. Very cool. Is Miller directing it? Yeah. Cool. Of course he is. Cool, Ooh, man. Nobody else could have directed no. a Mad Max movie. Very cool. This is a movie that, this is a franchise like no one else could do the movies well, like him. I know, but if they keep doing spinoffs and it's successful, you'll know they'll want to do like three more in the next five years. True, yeah, yeah. We'll see. Mad Max verse. Yeah, Mad, uh, it's, uh, this is a verse movie. Mm-hmm. Origins, Furiosa. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Furiosa mentions to the mothers that she has been gone for 7,000 days, plus the ones she doesn't remember. This equates to about 19 years since she's, since she's been gone from home. And then Furiosa calls Max fool when he doesn't tell her his name early in the film. This is a reference to the fool's journey, the story structure of the film. In this structure, Max plays the role of the fool. This is uh, the fool from tarot cards. And so that it's, a, it's a way of um, depicting a story with tarot cards based upon 22 cards that you can use out of the set for The Fool's Journey. And the writer of the film, Nico Lotharis, said he used the Tree of Life of the Kabbalah and the Major Arcana in tarot as a map for the story of this film. Interesting And so stuff. Max represents the Fool. 
Cool. Yeah. Got anything else? The only film in the Mad Max franchise where the last road battle does not end in a head-on collision between two vehicles and a main antagonist is killed in the process. That would have been way too repetitive if, yeah. if it ended that way yet again. Too predictable, too. Yeah. yeah. I like that. I like it. I like it. <laughs> you like everybody, Mars. But, man, I'm telling you, I watched this movie last night, and I, I was just like, this is one of the best movies made of like the last 20 years, man. It really is. It's exceptional. In the action genre, there's nothing like it. Yeah. Oh, I forgot to mention, because the stunts are obviously so impressive, 150% of the stunt performers, 150 of the stunt performers were from Cirque du Soleil. Makes sense. Yeah. Very acrobatic movements. Mm-hmm. Pretty interesting stuff. Yeah. That's it for my fun facts, and I fucking love this movie. Five out of five, ten out of ten. Perfect movie. Um, I'm not sure how he'll be able to top it with Furiosa, but I'm sure Furiosa is still going to be fantastic. Very cool. I also gave it five out of five, like we talked about earlier. Thanks so much for tuning into Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Hope you enjoyed this review and analysis of Mad Max Fury Road. You'll see us in Valhalla, shiny and chrome. Witness me! <laughs> Become a patron today at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Take care, everybody. See you next time. This episode was executive produced by our chosen one patrons, Cody Moen, Andrew Hagen, Becca Keen, Benjamin Cook, Calvin Murphy Griggs, Nicholas Martin, Darian, Tyler McFly, and Sal Koching. Our chosen one patrons are our biggest supporters. Thank you so much. Thank you for watching Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button, hit the like button as well, notifications for sure. Listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere you can listen to podcasts. And be sure to check out this other content we have on our YouTube channel.